Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. More than 3,000 projects, $50 billion investment and over 400,000 local jobs. These are some numbers that can describe China's Belt and Road Initiative 10 years on. According to the World Bank, by 2030, if fully implemented, BRI's transport infrastructure is projected to boost global rural income by between 1% to 3%, while lifting 7.6 million people out of extreme poverty and 32 million from moderate poverty. However, the journey has not been an easy and smooth one. Take Malaysia as an example. The East Coast Rail Link project was approved in 2016, cancelled by a new government in 2018, resumed in 2019, and is now still under construction. What prevents such projects from staying on track? What can be learned from the hiccups? I'm pleased to be joined for this special edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, from Beijing by Ong T. Keat, President of the Belt and Road Initiative Caucus for Asia Pacific and Chairman of the Center for New Inclusive Asia and also former Federal Transport Minister of Malaysia. Mr. Ong, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to this edition of The Point. I want to start by asking you to use three different keywords to describe the project 10 years after it was first proposed. Um, which three words would you use? Well, the three words that come to my mind instantly are none other than, first, inclusivity, followed by connectivity, and symbiosis. Inclusivity actually uh, is rather straightforward because we know that this initiative actually has been inclusive in nature. It involves all nations, either from the global south or the developed countries. There's no such thing as certain segments of the world were to be excluded. This is number one. Mm -hmm. and uh, followed by connectivity. And we all know that this has been the model, a unique model that involves connectivity in five aspects, five aspects ranging from logistics, trade, finance, and uh, human connectivity. Whereas symbiosis signifies mutually beneficial or win-win in the perspective of general public. I noticed in many instances BRI is either deliberately or inadvertently portrayed as an altruistic run that runs contrary to what it was intended. Let's take um, some projects in Malaysia as an example. Uh, there is this two countries twin parks project, which is a flagship between China and Malaysia under the Belt and Road Initiative. And last year marks its 10th anniversary. So um, what's the concrete benefits that this project has brought to Malaysia and to the um, industries and residents who are associated with these industrial parks? And when we talk about ERI in Malaysia, the first thing coming to our mind is none other than the landmark project in the, the two countries' twin parks. Two countries' twin parks actually involve the construction of two national level industrial parks in Kuantan, Malaysia, 
as well as Qingzhou, China. And uh, so far, this has been uh, going on steadily. And I presume we have ample space to further develop the twin parts in two different countries concurrently. I am cautiously optimistic in the prospect of developing the two parts. And on the other hand, perhaps uh, if I may shed some light on the ECRL project, the East Coast Rail Link, uh, which has been uh, talked about at one time, particularly when it was stalled for a short span of time. With ERI critics, I observe, they like to label the C ECRL project as a Chinese death trap and uh, the stalling of the project as a purported pushback by Malaysian authorities against what they call Beijing's economic portion. To my understanding, this is nothing more than a pack of lies. And uh, the motive behind is none other than the intention to stigmatize China and the project per se. And uh, if I may recollect the uh, progress of the project, now, it was stalled immediately after the change of guards, after our election in 2018. Thereafter, actually, there was a reconfiguration of the alignment, the railway alignment. The project was revived again in 2019, shortly after one year. But we didn't expect that there were some further changes when the uh, new government, soon after the new government, collapsed. After partly two years, the original configuration of alignment was again adopted. And all this uh, flip-flop actually is nothing but attributable to uh, the political changes in our country, in Malaysia. And there's nothing or whatsoever attributable to China. What can we expect going forward? Do you think this kind of back and forth will continue to exist and hinder such economic cooperation projects? Or do you think that emerging from such experience, people may probably have a better idea of uh, what the politicking is uh, really taking a toll on? You know, that the, the project has been delayed, that the people people's conveniences, you know, what they can benefit from this project is being pushed further down the line. Well, actually, uh, I would say very unfortunate indeed. Many a time, partisans in our country, perhaps, they may not be able to see the interest of the projects which is going to be brought to the people, but rather they would go hasplit over the consideration of their political interests. And uh, in this particular project, I must say that it is going to reshape the logistical connectivity between the East Coast and West Coast of Peninsular Malaysia. And uh, by so doing, we are cautiously optimistic that when the project is completed, certainly it is going to transform the economic backwater in our East Coast states now into a new hub of connectivity that is going to bring about economic benefits to the backwater. I must say that this has been going on steadily. How would you describe 
the agenda of China here, if I can use this word, to invest and help Malaysia build a domestic railway. What interest do you think China is trying to reap from such cooperation by helping Malaysia get a better infrastructure? How would you explain it to the local people? Yeah, or when I use the word symbiosis, actually, I mean to say that ultimately, the outcome is going to benefit not just the Chinese contractors or the uh, SOEs, the state-owned enterprises undertaking the project, but rather the people at large, the people in Malaysia, they are the ultimate beneficiaries of the project. And uh, that is the reason why I use the word symbiosis or mutually beneficial. And it is not just one-way grant, one-way so-called overseas grant given to Malaysia. That is not true. But unfortunately, such misconception is still prevalent among certain people, among certain quarters of the population. You are in Beijing, uh, maybe one of the first few times after the three-year COVID pandemic, and you must be going around seeing things, possibly shopping as well. What kind of experience that have impressed you or that you find interesting that can be brought to Malaysia, for instance, or vice versa, maybe something that Malaysia can offer to China as well in terms of digital economy? What is conspicuously felt is none other than the uh, cashless shopping that has been prevalent in China nowadays. And uh, Malaysia, in Malaysia, or even for this matter, in the entire region, we are still heavily dependent on credit cards, debit cards, or even cash. It makes the difference. And I presume many of our people, our Malaysians, they are yearning for the advance of such an era where we don't need to carry along our cash to do our shopping. Well, China is definitely marching ahead in terms of digital infrastructure. Um, We just know the latest phone, for instance, coming out of the Chinese uh, phone maker Huawei that can make satellite calls out of your your, uh, smartphones. But anyway, let's move on to the blue economy. This seemed not to have been talked so much, whereas China and Southeast Asian countries share a lot of uh, commonality in this regard. We share um, same waters, for instance. What can be done there in terms of blue economy? I must admit that it is still a relatively underharnessed sector, where the potential has yet to be adequately unleashed, given that the region is blessed with abundance of marine resources in our territorial waters. And the ASEAN leaders' declaration on blue economy way back in 2021 signifies the regional bloc's commitment to developing the blue economy sustainably. I think this is an an important commitment to developing blue economy sustainably. The complementarity between ASEAN's agenda and China's expertise makes a good match for China-ASEAN economic collaboration in developing the blue economy. And uh, so far, has there been Mm. such a collaboration? Perhaps this is the question uh, you might likely ask. Because in the past, we were more focused on seafood trading. 
but that would not represent the entirety of developing the blue economy. Now that I could see that fishery is one of the outstanding sectors, now where countries like Malaysia and China would further develop, that means to say we should go beyond the so-called seafood trading only. Things like uh, aquaculture and uh, exchange of exchange of uh, fishery information, fishery technology, for instance, these are the new areas where two countries should work concertedly. Because I have yet to see a comprehensive framework be drafted along this line. Do you foresee the kind of differences among ASEAN countries kind of disrupting or preventing a certain collaboration among ASEAN countries? Do you see that? Because sometimes these differences uh, can be blown out of proportion or can be highlighted on the international media, giving people the impression that uh, there is a lot of tension there. What is your take on that? I must say that uh, in nurturing the prevailing condition, the prevailing relationship between ASEAN and China. Now, what remains to be addressed now, is the lack of track to diplomacy. Track to diplomacy, rather, I would describe it in the layman's term, the people-to-people -people diplomacy. This has been lacking now in our past decade of uh, implementing DRI. And perhaps we should focus more on the, the human aspect, the human connectivity aspect of track to diplomacy in uh, implementing our PRR. What is the use if we were to encourage more interaction, more interaction between the civil societies or even the trade associations now between the two countries? Certainly, this would help in addressing the trust deficit, which has been a sensitive issue when we nurture the kind of uh, relationship between Malaysia and China or between ASEAN and China. And uh, this is something which is more relevant when we are now facing now such a new challenge that is none other than the wedge driving by powers from outside the region. And uh, I hope to say, end of the day, PRI implementation is not just confined to the uh, sheer economics. It should be a, an all-dimensional or dimensional model or dimensional platform that enables us to develop our countries. Why has there been a lack or not insufficient people-to-people -people interaction? Has it been hindered by, I don't know, bureaucracy or a lack of uh, importance that's attached to it or a tradition? of uh, not talking to each other so much. How would you explain that? Because if you want to tackle a problem, you go to the source of it. You find out what the problems are and you tackle them. You have to acknowledge that the uh, social structure of both, China, of both China and Malaysia, or for this matter, even the entire ASEAN, are not identical. Or perhaps, if I may say, there are differences in the structure, the social structure. And when we talk about the NGO interaction, NGO interaction, of course, it, it is not just uh, confined to the Chinese-based, the ethnic Chinese-based NGOs in the Southeast Asian countries. 
more importantly, as I said earlier, DRI is an inclusive model. We have to encourage more interaction, more exchange in real sense between the NGOs from both sides, NGOs as well as the trade association, or even sometimes the interaction of a professional bodies. And all this is still lacking now in our kind of a proper or bilateral parts. And I presume these are the areas where we can further develop, further explore. Right now, there are conflicting ideas that are being advocated by China and by uh, the West, especially uh, led by the United States. For instance, some scholars in the U.S. talk about a clash of civilizations, or um, you hear the constant uh, warning against China's growing ambition or growing influence or growing prowess in this region, especially the kind of security threat that China may pose to the region. But on the other hand, China is proposing initiatives, peaceful initiatives, such as on development, such as on uh, cultural exchanges, uh, such as on security, how countries can coexist uh, in peace. So what do people in countries in the region see these kind of different ideas? What do they aspire? Well, I presume people in the region, including our Malaysians, now, certainly we are more concerned about the well-being of our children, our generations to come. And at the same time, it is our duty to endeavor towards that direction, that is to provide good life and uh, to enhance the well-being of the entire society for our generations to come. But in the case of uh, America, so far I do observe that all the gimmicks all the uh, strategic moves, so to speak, in containing China is simply rooted in their fear, or rather their anguish, of being displaced as the sole global leader. This is the kind of anguish that really makes them obsessed. And the obsession itself has triggered a lot more illogical moves, which we have been uh, seeing in the past decade until today. And I see there's no reason why now we should be apologetic when we want to pursue our path of development. And uh, at the same time, we have to be wary of such moves. You have written in a uh, commentary, you said that uh, at the current juncture, the U.S. is pushing for countries both large and small to take sides, particularly aiming to curb China's advances in economic and high-tech sectors. However, this approach is unlikely to ill the desired results. Why do you say that? Americans will not be very happy. The first example coming to my mind is none other than the overwhelmingly high overlapping membership of both RCEP and IPEF. IPEF, we know that this yeah. Indo-Pacific economic framework uh, is now being led by America. And uh, we just take a look at the membership. Seven out of ten ASEAN member states 
that is fine. But at the same time, one of the uh, main attraction is none other than the so-called the resilience of supply chain that they have been propagating. Let us take a look at the uh, supply chain agreement that was concluded in May this year in Detroit mm -hmm. uh, under the framework of IPF. Now, I was rather dismayed by uh, the outcome because instead of coming out with a substitute or an alternative, a viable alternative to the prevailing supply chain, which is subject to possible disruption yeah. in the event of any outbreak or unknown factors, I don't see any substitute is rolled out by IEF. But instead, what we saw was none other than the uh, rolling out of an emergency response mechanism, which I must say, the same response mechanism could easily be done as well within RCEP. CP because by itself, it should have sufficient means to do so, given that China being the leading or rather the biggest economy in the group, China being equipped with a full gamut of industrial supply chains, yeah. certainly it could be playing a very pivotal role in averting any supply chain disruption. I don't see any because IPF know very well that it is intended to exclude China. Yeah, instead of benefiting the country. So, yeah, you have to come up with a substitute which is convincing enough. Yeah. I don't see any. Do you have the impression that the Belt and Road Initiative is increasingly becoming a thing for the global south that's led by China, although it was not the original intention? I mean, China extended invitation to everybody. Uh, the Americans were invited, Indians were invited, but now it seems that it's becoming more and more a thing of the global south. Are you observing such a trend? If so, what kind of factors could have contributed to the shift? DRI has not been designed in such a way to benefit only the global south. Let me make it clear. But in the past decade of implementation, most of the projects and DRI were related to infrastructure development, particularly those in the global south countries. And we all know that the global south, in fact, we have a thirst for infrastructural development as compared to the developed economies. In the case of the developed economies, partly we see they attach significance to infrastructural development. Does it mean that they stand to gain nothing at all by embarking on BRI? could see that in the past 10 years, these countries, perhaps, they might have different focus as compared to the global south. They are more inclined to develop their trading. They're trading with China. And uh, these are the aspects that we can see very clearly. When uh, the South, they are more concerned, they are more focused on infrastructural development. Certainly, this would create the hype, the public hype, and also at the same time, be able to attract more attention more attention and international limelight. Whereas in the case of uh, trading, 
seldom, very seldom, have you come across public hype be created now in favor of this trading activities or enhancement of trading. Now, that benefits the developed economy. Thank you very much, Mr. Ong T. Keed, former Federal Minister of Transport of Malaysia. With that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. <laughs> Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Deutsche Bahn, the 26th United Nations Climate Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Once upon a time, in a land not so very far away, stories were told of the brave and the bold. The whole court fell silent to hear what the great warrior Mulan might ask for. Of mighty deities and powerful immortals, Immediately, the shimmering skin started to grow before his eyes of fated love and love sanctified. In dawn's golden light, New Lang said, Marry me. Of great journeys across fantastical landscapes. So the cat and the mouse climbed on the dog's back and the dog swam across the broad river. In the company of friends and enemies and unimagined beasts. Good to see you. Of ordinary folk with tantalizing stories to tell. Heroes and heroines all. It's incredible. How did you do that? Tales of sad sacrifice and victories snatched from the jaws of defeat. Stories of the wise, the accomplished and the quick of mind. 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3 wherever you discover your favorite podcasts.